0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David
1: Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
2: So welcome to episode 21 of the Sleep Talk Podcast, and I'm here again with my co-host, Dr. Moira Junger.
1: Hello, Dave. Hello everyone. Wow, 21 today.
2: Yeah, and we haven't missed one yet, so we're we're going okay. It's
1: good. I think it's realistic, isn't it, to aim for monthly.
2: So far, so good. <laughs> this episode, we're going to talk about why treat sleep apnea. And that superficially seems like a pretty simple question, but there's actually a lot more to it once you start to think about it. And we'll see if we can get into that. What's really triggered us to do this episode is some key Australian research that's been published in the last year or so. There was a randomised control trial, the SAVE study, and we'll talk to Doug McAvoy, the lead author of that study, a bit later in the episode. And he was also involved in publishing a meta-analysis on this topic. It's obviously been a very controversial area because as a field, we've taken it for granted that you've got to treat sleep apnea if you don't, bad cardiovascular things will happen. Turns out from this research, that's not necessarily true. And that's really stimulated a lot of discussion and people reasonably critical. I don't think justifiably so of that research. Uh, and we'll try and get into some of the detail about that. And Moira, you sent me the link to that ABC National Radio series on CPAP, which is one of the other reasons that we wanted to talk about why track sleep apnea.
1: It's an area that obviously I don't speak about very much. As a, as a health psychologist, you wouldn't think that I have much to say about CPAP or about OSA. Yet it's a really integral part of what I'm interested in, an integral part of um, of sleep in, the sleep field in general. I mean, obstructive sleep apnea is is, is really common isn't it and I guess the the threshold to treat or not treat is something that I don't really have any power over like it's Mm -hmm. nothing it would never be up to my decisions it's obviously a sleep physician decision you would hope and not someone who's underqualified Um, but coming to and having CPAP or not is a big deal because obviously the outcomes of CPAP can be fabulous and some people can take to it like a duck to water but a lot of people find it really difficult And I guess that's where I come into it. And if there are cases when people might not need it, but previously we've really, really pushed pretty hard and they might not need it, so I'd probably, I'm happy about that, to keep their distress levels down and, and get better sleep quality and quantity in other ways. Yet I'm a huge fan of the idea of someone who has severe sleep apnea uh, and is untreated so to to be knowing how good CPAP can be for them for, yep. for things like the, the, their excessive daytime sleepiness, for their mood levels, just, just to feel better again. Like mm-hmm. it's just a must be, I, mean, I don't have sleep apnea, two of my sisters do. It must have just be the most awful thing. Coincidentally, they've both taken like a duck to water to CPAP and have very, very good outcomes with it. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm really happy to talk about about this today.
2: So, Moira, what's been in the news around sleep this month?
1: Well, of course, it was it was Sleep Awareness Week during this last month. Yeah. We did, in time, um, launch yeah. the new website of Work Alert, which is the initiative of the CRC. <laughs> And sort of a business-facing website for employers and, you know, people to have some good strategies around lighting in the workplace and sleep scheduling and even maybe I think there's some stuff too on sleep disorder screening in the workplace. So really interesting stuff that's been that's been good and, and had a bit of media attention.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's um, a great site. I've, I've had a yeah, look at it. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Yeah, it's pretty good. good, isn't
1: it? Yeah. yeah. It's good too. Of course, we're gearing up to release a new report on, the, on sort of the – Not the benefits, or the benefits of sleep, really. That the harm to us when we don't get enough sleep, and that's been launched this week actually, August the 8th. So we'll talk more about that next time. Hopefully there's a big big media frenzy and lots of attention around that.
2: I'm really looking forward to that. So Mm -hmm. the data that came out of when this was last released back in around 2010, 2011, you know, it was really important showing the economic cost of sleep disorders Mm -hmm. to the Australian community and an important document in talking to government and um, other providers about prioritising sleep yeah, and so yeah, really looking forward to seeing that updated, and again being able to use that to advocate for sleep as an important part of health, and but also mm. important part of productivity and the oh, workplace, sure. and yeah. um, you know, in Australia, in an economic sense.
1: Mm, absolutely, I think that's a yeah, it's well timed, and and I'm really pleased. Yeah, next time to talk talk more about that.
2: Yeah, look out, David Hillman, you're on the hit list. I'll be be hitting you up yes. for an interview <laughs> over the next few episodes to talk about it once it's released.
1: What else has been in the news and media. What have you been up to or, or in general?
2: Yeah, there was a really interesting article in Scientific Reports. It's another one of these articles looking at sleep in pre-industrial societies. Mm. That's my bent at the minute, is looking at how culturally we think about yeah, sleep. There's yeah, yeah. a great study where a researcher, Andrew Beale um, from University of Surrey, spent two years living in Mozambique and spent some time in a town that's electrified and in an urban environment and some time in a rural environment and compared the sleep between those two communities. Fantastic. Yeah, great opportunity to look at sleep in two different settings and essentially showed people slept the same amount, whether they're in the urbanised, electrified, sort of modern way of living environment versus in the rural, no electricity environment. The difference being, without electricity, people went to sleep a bit earlier spent a bit more time in bed, were awake a bit more during the night, and in technical terms, therefore, mm. had a lower sleep efficiency. Mm. Whereas those with electrical lighting went to bed a bit later because you could do more yes. in the evening because yeah. of lighting, spent a bit less time awake during the night, and had therefore had a higher sleep efficiency, but didn't sleep any less or any more than the people in the rural setting. Which is not just another nice example, trying to debunk that myth that we're busy and we're sleeping less. Because mm. so far, there's actually no research to support that notion.
1: Do you think that it does impact though, in terms of we're sleeping less, not so much in that crude way that like less hours per night, etc. More that we're sleeping less efficiently though, like that we're oh, sure. we're not getting to sleep when we want to, like if we might because we're overstimulated and that that sort of thing. Like that, I guess that's my bent is. Yeah. Ha- their mind, the person's mind that's full of stuff, you know, yeah. chattering away when they, they want to get to bed, but because they've been at work all day and they've been on their computers and that, that's why, so we're more stimulated in that way. So not so much the hours of sleep, more the quality or the, when we're getting it when we want it.
2: Yeah, and my take on that is it's about how much time we allocate for sleep and how much sleep we expect to be in that space. Yes. So if you think of a yes. pre-industrial society where people went to sleep, went, went to bed, sorry, when the sun went down and yeah. arose when the sun went up, yeah. they sort of accepted that sleep would spread across that space and there'd be bits of wake and bits of mm. sleep.
1: It's a long time, isn't it? It's a
2: long time. <laughs> yeah. Now we're busy. It's like I ain't got time to be spending mm. 12 hours in bed to get seven <laughs> hours of sleep and five hours of restlessness. Yeah. If I'm going to allocate seven hours of my precious time to sleep, I want 6 hours and 59 minutes of sleep in that <laughs> yeah. space.
1: Value for money.
2: Value, <laughs> value for money. And that, to me, is what all this research has been showing, is that the minutes of sleep in both a pre-industrialised and industrialised setting are actually pretty much the same. Mm. The yeah. difference is how much opportunity people yes. give. Yes,
1: asleep. I think we're in furious agreement that it's around the opportunity and the timing of being able to have it on call a little bit more, on tap. Yeah. But people don't, I mean, that's, uh, I, I must I must admit I haven't read that paper, but I, I will. That sounds, it sounds really good. And I wonder, though, whether he, these people, was it the same people in different situations or just different population per se? Yeah, say? Di- yeah, yeah. Di-
2: different populations.
1: Yeah, because it'd be interesting to be able to get us over into that Area, Give us time to settle in
2: and see what happens. We well, you know there's been those mini experiments of that. So Kenneth Wright's paper yeah, on the, taking the, teen- the hiking
1: teenagers teenagers
2: yeah. out into the woods mm. and they very quickly reverted to mm. going to sleep when the sun went down. Mm.
1: Anyway, for just another time, another discussion.
2: So many topics, Maura. <laughs>
1: So as we said in the intro, today's theme is around obstructive sleep apnea, which we always refer to as OSA. So it's probably a good idea to start from the very basics, Dave, Dr. Dave. Like What what exactly is OSA and how common is it?
2: Think of obstructive sleep apnea as when we go to sleep and get muscular relaxation in the airway and other body muscles, the airway narrowing enough that the brain senses it needs to step in and do something about it. And sometimes that can be a pretty minor narrowing, often not even enough to cause snoring, particularly in women, but still enough that the brain senses, hey, breathing's not right. I'm going to sacrifice sleep, pull someone up to the surface a bit more, disrupt sleep, to contract muscles and open the airway. The more common stereotype for sleep apnea is more the, I think of it as sort of heavy guy type of sleep apnea. Mm. Loud snoring that then peters out into sounding like there's a silence during the night as the airway completely closes, and then a sort of gasp or a choking or a big breath as the airway then opens up and often some restlessness. Mm. And the, the way we grade severity of sleep apnea, wrongly or rightly, is on how frequently those sleep disruptions occur. Mm. And we give that an index, and that's called the apnea hypopnea index, abbreviated as the AHI. Mm. And around 20 years ago, we defined that as less than 5 being normal, 5 to 15 as being in the mild range, 15 to 30 as moderate, and greater than 30 as severe. Now, the reason just to tell you those severity criteria is often people have got a copy of their own sleep study and they're looking at this number and going, what's that mean, where do I sit and so they're they're the different uh, severity bands and sleep apnea is extraordinarily common if we just took people off the street um men off the street over the age of 50 and put them in the sleep laboratory one in four would have sleep apnea as defined by measuring events occurring frequently during the night yes but it doesn't mean that one in four are sleepy and it's causing them sleep disruption and Um.
1: Seeking out some help because
2: of their debilitation. That's right, and therefore needing help. And that's more what we think is around one in 20, Mm. have that. So that's that difference between seen to have sleep apnea and sleep apnea that's actually causing tiredness, Mm. having impact on symptoms, causing sleep disruption. Mm. And that gap, the difference between the one in four and the one in 20, is the group where we've thought, well, you know what, even though you haven't got symptoms, we should treat it because the sleep apnea is going to cause you cardiovascular risk. And if we treat it, it's going to take away that cardiovascular risk. And that's why it's been so important to answer that question. Does treating that sleep apnea actually negate that cardiovascular risk? And does it? Well we thought it did. Mm. <laughs> but the latest round of studies, which we'll get on and talk about, seem to suggest it maybe it doesn't. There's been a whole lot of lead-in research showing an association between obstructive sleep apnea and cardiovascular risks such as hypertension, heart attacks, heart failure, stroke. You know, studies that have followed people over many years who've got sleep apnea and shown that they're at higher risk of these events. And then there's been some intervention studies where you put people on treatment such as a thing called continuous positive airway pressure. We've been talking about that, calling it CPAP. Mm. So that's a mask that attaches to a machine on the bedside table and uses air pressure to inflate the back of the airway and keep the airway open. So there's been some intervention studies showing that particular type of treatment can reduce blood pressure, can improve heart function. Really, but when we stand back, they're actually intermediate outcomes or they're not really the did it prevent someone getting a heart attack. Mm. Which is really what people are interested in.
1: Do you think it's related to the other, the comorbidities of, I mean, so obesity or, I don't know, like, because those sorts of things or, the, or predisposition?
2: Yeah, the research research techniques in these epidemiological studies do allow you to correct out for mm. a lot of those factors. Mm. So it's corrected out for obesity. Mm. There's an argument that maybe the wrong way of correcting out for obesity. So maybe it's been about body mass index isn't the right measure, mm. um, some theoretical discussion in the field about maybe it's visceral fat and that doesn't get reflected in BMI and maybe better reflected in weight circumference or imaging of the abdominal tissue to look at visceral fat. So yeah, maybe we haven't been finding the right confounder or the right other associated feature that is actually what conveys the risk. Because of the uncertainty as to whether CPAP really does reduce those heart outcomes like heart attack and stroke, this was why the SAVE study was designed and published in 2016 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I had the opportunity to interview Professor Doug McAvoy, who designed the study and was the lead author and led the team in conducting the SAVE study. Doug's a professor in the Department of Medicine at Flinders University in South Australia. So thanks a lot, Doug, for talking with us. Oh, pleased
0: to be here, David. Yeah. So why did you actually do the SAVE study? Well, David, as you know, for uh, well over a decade, there'd been a number of studies, what we call cohort studies, where people have been looking at the association between sleep apnea and cardiovascular disease. And the evidence was accumulating from those studies that uh, sleep apnea appeared to be an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And these cohort studies uh, you know, were quite compelling we thought and of course a lot of people at that point were beginning to believe quite strongly that you know everyone with sleep apnea ought to be on the treatment for it to prevent you know cardiovascular events however you know the cardiology community not convinced you know they need to get uh, you know high level evidence which comes from randomized controlled trials so this evidence was lacking in our field so we embarked on the study and of course recognizing that observational data like as I mentioned had been accumulating over a couple of decades has let us down in medicine before you know in the area of you know HRT therapy for example in postmenopausal women in uh, some of the antiarrhythmic drugs uh, in cardiology and, you know, more lately, you know, denovation of the renal vasculature for resistant hypertension. So we were aware that, you know, we needed to do a randomised controlled trial. So we, you know, garnered the uh, support from cardiovascular trialists and, and uh, industry and the National Health and Medical Research Council to get going on the, on the study.
2: And I remember the prevailing view amongst sleep community, at least at the time, was that this is an answered question you know, it was going to solve the cardiovascular problem. So was there resistance or did you have to try and shift the belief at the time?
0: Well, I think, yes, I think, but not a great deal of resistance because I think people felt that, yes, I mean, this is almost certainly going to be the case. We just need to get, you know, garner the evidence and uh, and we'll get on with it, you know, sort of, and that will help the field. And of course, that was our motivation as well. But there was some resistance, uh, a little bit. In fact, the first grant we wrote for the NHMRC was rejected on the basis it was unethical to do the trial. I and mean, obviously, one of the, you know, influential reviewers took that opinion and uh, there was a uh, you know, an element within the um, within the sleep community that wondered whether that would be the case as well. But I think in the way we designed the study and we talked to people and we certainly spoke to all the relevant key opinion leaders in the countries where we were doing the study. In the end, with the checks and balances we had within the study, everyone was happy that it was an ethical thing to do. You know, and there was an important question and significant equipoise I think amongst uh, clinicians that you know this was a doubtful area, certainly amongst cardiologists and stroke physicians. For us to get on and do the study. So, what did you actually find? Well, what we found was that you know after studying over two and a half thousand people randomised to CPAP plus the usual cardiovascular care versus the usual cardiovascular care, that alone, that we could not find a benefit from the use of CPAP on a what we call a composite cardiovascular endpoint. So it was a sort of a, a basket, if you like, of cardiovascular events all put together and we couldn't find a benefit in terms of reduction of stroke, myocardial infarction, cardiovascular death when you put all that together as a... As a cardiovascular, you know, sort of index of risk, you know, or of, of events. Yeah,
2: and that's the cardiovascular side. What about quality of life measures or other symptom measures?
0: Yeah, well, a very gratifying thing uh, that we found was that there were substantial uh, and highly significant benefits in a number of neurobehavioral and quality of life indices. For example, and you know, the, the Epworth sleeping Score, which is a clinical index of sleepiness, um, decreased significantly. There were quality of life improvements both in the mental health and physical domains, in particularly depression, which was impressive. I think you know there was significantly less depression um, in the in the cohort that was treated or the arm that was treated with CPAP at the end of the study. And interestingly, even though we were, we had a population a significant proportion of whom were retired, those who were still working reported less days lost from work due to ill health. So that was quite a gratifying result. Mm.
2: And then come 2017. You've now analysed the data. It's published. You've had time to reflect on it. How's that changed your clinical practice compared to a couple of years ago when deciding to manage sleep apnea?
0: Well, I think I'm sort of less uh, insistent or strong in my advice to people that they ought to be on treatment for cardiovascular risk reduction. I think you know, the, I think the that question is still an open one, to be honest. Uh, and this this evidence given us pause for thought. I think. I mean, there were some issues with the study, if you like, that people have pointed to. You know, there were very few people that used the treatment all night, which is, I guess, what happens in clinical practice. Had they had the whole, you know, a lot of them been able to use it really well, could we have found a different result? We don't know the answer to that. So I think we've just got to be a little bit more circumspect about how the way uh, we advise our patients, and I certainly do that. I, I say that person who's got existing cardiovascular disease, look, you know, certainly use this for symptomatic benefit. I know from this study that you, you know, there's a good chance that you will feel a lot better, you'll feel less sleepy, and so forth. But I can't put my hand on my heart and say to them, look, I think there's a, you know a really strong chance that you're going to have fewer heart attacks or strokes or whatever you, you know your future concerns are. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: There are still some in the field, so the editorial in JAMA a couple of weeks ago suggested, you know, we don't have an answer, we, you know, may not be a negative sort of trial.
0: Do you think we'll ever see bigger trials or get more clarity on this question? I think I think that is uh, it's difficult to see at the moment how we would get the very large trials you know the 20,000 25,000 just by the the sort of nature of the difficulty of getting the treatment you know sort of started the diagnosis making the treatment started and of course the funding agencies you know uh, you know we don't have the big pharma to equivalents to yeah. support such big large trials my own view is that I think we've got to get smarter about picking subtypes of patients that might be at greater risk of the cardiovascular consequences of sleep apnea and perhaps focusing uh, on relatively smaller trials perhaps of the size that we've done with SAVE but focusing on specific high risk category of patients and the real challenge for the field now is I think how to identify those patients you know who are they we're doing some retrospective work from the SAVE participants you know that we're in the two two and a half thousand patients trying to look at Uh, clinical phenotypes that looked as if they had greater risk and in whom there may have been you know a CPAP intervention benefit and uh, you know it's very early days yet we're about to we haven't fully analysed and we certainly haven't submitted it for publication yet but it looks like that there may be a, a you know one or two phenotypes that look particularly susceptible to cardiovascular risk and whom it might be they might be targets for you know, the next trial. I think stroke is the thing that came out from the uh, from our uh, SAVE study as been a possible target. So uh, trying to, you know, get a study going with secondary prevention for stroke. It's technically very difficult because of the nature of the patients, but, you know, it certainly needs needs thought. And uh, not related to the SAVE study so much, but I think there are other cardiovascular targets. I mean, atrial fibrillation, I think, is, is an obvious target where we need a randomised controlled trial. And of course, you can look at there, I think, uh, useful intermediate markets of risk, you don't have to look at stroke particularly, but I mean it would be great if you could, but yeah. I think if you look at uh, AF burden, for example, which you can measure now quite well with um, you yeah. know loop recorders and things like that, we may be able to demonstrate on those intermediate markers a change that would be clinically significant, that would change clinical practice toward the identification of sleep apnea in that population and its treatment.
2: Thanks very much, Doug, and congratulations on the great work of SAVE. I know the effort that you put into it, and it's really added a lot to the field.
0: Thank you very much, Dave. It's been a pleasure talking to you. So
2: that's interesting to hear from Doug that the SAVE results showed that cardiovascular events weren't really reduced with CPAP, but importantly, symptoms were reduced. So symptoms of sleepiness and symptoms of depression and uh, quality of life. They're important outcomes for you, more. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's why I wouldn't want to have people necessarily straight away put their CPAP machines away based on this so-called negative study because from my point of view, it's essentially really positive in terms of it's shown what I've known anecdotally from a very young girl being a sleep technologist, putting electrodes on people's heads when I was studying psychology. So working at the Alfred Hospital and learning about sleep and really being interested in it, and seeing from with anecdotally seeing these people who are having their first night on CPAP and then in the morning feeling fantastic, so they haven't slept like that for years. And and I know that everyone didn't have that, that that sort of experience. To have people feeling better in general terms is a really, really, really good outcome because. If you're not getting proper sleep, so regardless of the cardiovascular risk, it's really important to treat sleep apnea for those reasons, just to, to have a better quality of life to improve your mood, less sleepy, more, you know, significantly less sleepy is, is is a powerful thing for productivity, for absenteeism versus, or presenteeism, absenteeism, both of them. Obviously, there's lots of other things as well, like reducing risk of car accidents and other sorts of accidents.
2: Yeah. So although this was, this study showed, you know, we really shouldn't be necessarily using CPAP or putting people on sleep apnea treatment just to reduce cardiovascular risk, there are other groups of people we see who are in fatigue-sensitive occupations, such as long-distance transport drivers, airline pilots, train drivers, and there's good research showing that sleep apnea increases their accident risk significantly, and also good research showing that CPAP almost negates that accident risk. Yeah. So even yeah. if someone who's a transport driver is reporting nothing in the way of symptoms, unfortunately, shows they're still at higher risk of accidents. Yeah. And that is a subgroup that I'm still going to be wanting to put on to that Yeah,
1: yeah. The, these, the results of these studies wouldn't change any of those things, would it? Like if you had a, a person who's excessively sleepy and having low mood yep. and at risk of accidents, you wouldn't hesitate in, yeah, in yeah. still going pretty hard with the messages
2: Absolutely, Around sleep. and and even someone just at risk of accidents in a fatigue-sensitive occupation like a transport driver, Absolutely. even if they weren't sleepy or they didn't. Yes, have Yes, exactly. Have a so,
1: so I guess it's it's a highlight to us all to be more specific, a bit more of a tailor than a off-the-rack. Yes, <laughs> you know, you want to have it tailored to that particular patient, and uh, and also consider their partner, because sometimes just actually making sure, because obviously the snoring goes away. There's a gentle hum yeah. of the machine. But that's a good enough reason in some cases that can save a marriage. Absolutely. You know, it can be, it's a really, really important thing because it's, it's it, it, I mean, I'm very fortunate my bed partner doesn't snore, mainly after red wine, then, which is not on the cards anymore. Anyway, he's abstaining. Yep. <laughs> that's another thing to, to consider. Like sometimes just obliterating the snoring and therefore reducing, obliterating the obstructive sleep apnea can be a good outcome for the partner as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And there's an old study and a small study, but it showed that partners of people with sleep apnea got a 13% increase in their sleep efficiency once the partner went on to treatment with CPAP. Yeah, that's huge, isn't it? Yeah, and then yeah. if you assume eight hours in bed, that yeah. translates to 62 more minutes of sleep per night. Yes, yes. So that's a big difference for people.
1: Yeah, and I know that like in the insomnia world that, it- We both know that you know Sean Drummond, a Melbourne based at the moment, a a USA uh, professor of psychology, looking at people with insomnia and bringing in the intervention, bringing the partner in, like which is fantastic, isn't it? You can't, we really shouldn't be treating people in isolation necessarily with it. We're talking about a sleep problem, so whether it's insomnia, whether it's snoring and OSA. Like considering, considering what the what the bed partner is going through as well is really important.
2: Absolutely, because sleep is a shared experience for a lot of people.
1: Mm, absolutely. So given this research and the uh, really excellent interview you did with Doug, I thought that was a, a great seven or so minutes. he got a lot of information there and he was very articulate and really open about all that. What's the upshot for you? Like, Has it changed the way that you treat people with obstructive sleep apnea?
2: It has made a difference. So prior to the publication of the SAVE study, really for me, I'd be thinking of three major outcomes. I'd be thinking of, does someone have symptoms? So are they sleepy or is it causing them sleep disturbance? So that'd be one reason for treatment. The second reason would be, is the bed partner sleep disturbed? So is the bed partner troubled by snoring and the noise or distressed about what they're hearing at night? And the third would be health risk. So, is there significant health risk associated with the sleep apnea? That treatment would reduce. And we'd sort of been on the assumption that the treatment would negate that risk. Yeah. So, now post SAVE in 2017, are much less using that concern about health risk as mm. the sole reason to treat. Sleep but but health
1: risks as in cardiovascular
2: specifically because yeah, nice, there's still health nice risks, point. aren't there? Yeah. Really? yeah, exactly. So risks of depression of, and, yeah, the safe and, and accidents showed, and, and, accidents you know, all and that. studies have shown it does reduce the incidence of yeah, those yeah. outcomes. So, yeah, thank you for clarifying yeah. that. Yeah, cardiovascular. Yeah. So that's the that's really the difference from my point of view. And it also sharpens the focus too and makes me think when I'm starting someone on uh, treatment for sleep apnea, why am I doing it? You know, what's mm-hmm. the outcome I'm trying to modulate? How am I going to measure that outcome to make sure I've achieved it? Mm. And I think they're good things to think of. Mm. The, the other important thing for me is we used to think that, well, we'll put someone on CPAP and their cardiovascular risk was dealt with. But really, this research has shown that's not the case. And people do need to be more proactive about losing weight, being physically fit, managing their cardiovascular Mm. risk factors in the standard ways, not smoking, managing cholesterol, managing blood pressure, Mm. rather than thinking, yeah, I'll put my CPAP machine on and that'll negate all those risks and I don't have to worry about those things.
1: But I guess in my mind, I'm thinking, and I know this is this is for someone who can tolerate CPAP, that it probably is a good idea. I, I would still want to, if I was a physician, I'd still want to encourage it for the point of view from those exact things you said about getting, having weight loss, et cetera. Because if you're super sleepy and super tired and and, and depressed and you're not going to be able to lose weight. Look how hard, it's yeah. so hard for even someone who's quite well, to lose weight yeah. and to have that motivation and to yeah. and the energy, the energy to get yeah. up early and to, or to ride your bike and all the stuff that it really takes a lot of focus and you have, and mental, pretty good mental health to be able to get in that space.
2: Yeah, I agree with you, Myra. So really, I was more getting at the the asymptomatic person yes. who says, "You know yes. what? I'm, I'm just here because I got told. I shared yeah. a room, room with my mates, got told yeah. I stopped breathing. Yeah. Do yeah. I really need to yes. wear a machine because yes. it's not giving me any trouble?"
1: Yeah. So again, again, being being targeted, being tailor made to that. If that person is really sleepy, if that person saying, "Look, I'm overweight because I just can't walk anymore. I used to, I used to get up and I, I used to swim every morning. I used to go down the beach every, and they can't do it anymore." Yeah. That's when you think, "Look, I think the whole cardiovascular talk aside, to to actually help reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease." get them on the CPAP,
2: to get them moving again. Very nice point. So if you're looking for more information on this topic, I'll put links to the actual SAVE study from the New England Journal in the show notes, as well as the meta-analysis on this topic that was recently published in JAMA and the accompanying editorial. I've written a summary about the SAVE study on Sleep Hub, and I'll put the link there as well. And for health professionals, there's also an article that myself and Dr. Jun Koo wrote for Respiratory Medicine Today.
1: So, what's the clinical tip of the month?
2: I've sort of done this already, but really wanted to circle back to both for sleep apnea, but it's, you can extrapolate that to anything. If I'm going to decide that I'm going to treat something, I've really got to ask myself as a healthcare provider, why? What am I actually trying to achieve? Mm. Uh, and how am I going to measure that outcome? Because far too often, I reckon, as healthcare providers and in medicine, we, we treat an abnormality without stepping back and thinking about the why. Mm. And at a patient end, often when I'm seeing healthcare providers as a patient or as a client, the other questions are in my mind as well. you're telling me to do this, why? Yeah. How are yes. we going to measure success? Yes. You know, why are we actually doing this? So I'd encourage people to, if that isn't part of the discussion when you're seeing your healthcare provider, uh, to actually ask those questions. Good point. Now, Moira, what about your pick of the month?
1: Well, my pick of the month, I've stumbled upon a new podcast. and it's probably, Another one? And I love it. I'm so obsessed with podcasts these days.
2: I must admit, I listen to quite a number of US political podcasts, which shows what I'm sort of fascinated about
1: at the moment. <laughs> Well, there's a lot to talk about, isn't there? In the U.S. politics. Mine's a psychological one, um, called of Shrink, course. yeah, Shrink Rep Radio. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> Isn't that cool? And I must admit, I haven't. I'm not an avid listener. Like, there's, I think it's weekly at least. Like, it's a lot of them. There's, there's a lot of episodes. It's been going on for many years. And there was one. There's obviously in a big podcast like that, ran, talking about a range of different uh, issues within psychology, psychology and psychiatry. And obviously there's one recently on sleep that someone was talking to me about. I said, oh, I hadn't even heard of that. So I was showing my ignorance that didn't know about shrink wrap radio. So I'll put the link in our show notes of, to the one that I was um, shown or referred to with talking a, a sleep guy talking about um, how to get better sleep. Thank you, Molly. What about yours? Yours would be a bit more, I should have done a more serious nerdy one. No, no, no my, yours. Is...
2: it's sort of nerdy. <laughs> so someone recommended this book to me. It's called Blitzed. By Norman Ola, and it's actually about uh, drug use in the Third Reich or the German Army through oh. World War One and particularly in World War Two.
1: Yes, they were on everything on cocaine, yeah. meth, meth. I've I've um
2: listened to the podcast of
1: this <laughs> of that guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, amazing.
1: Yeah, oh wow.
2: And you know, I'm, I often get. You know, caught up in, you know, I prescribe medications to keep people awake as part of my day-to-day role and seeing Mm. people with hypersomnias and I'm very cautious about it. But then to read about as a society and, you know, it wasn't just the armed forces, it was actually German society, just widespread use of methamphetamine tablets that you could buy in the street without, (laughs) not even on prescription like really, so not
1: illegal, as in just rampant, just just an open market, really. Just, yeah, yeah,
2: openly marketed yeah. to you know, heal all ills. Mm-hmm. Um, you could get more housework done. You know, there's, there's these examples, <laughs> oh, <great>. of, <laughs> examples of really not very politically correct ads showing you know, housewives <laughs> getting more housework done if they take methamphetamine? You know, mm. the, the mind really boggles. But yeah, and the one of the sort of theories. From the author is that it was after a couple of years of being on methamphetamine, the German forces were really strung out, and that was yeah. why they didn't do so well towards the end of the war. They oh. were psychotic, and yeah. burnt out, imploded. Yeah,
1: imploded with, yeah, drugs, imploded drug,
2: use. with um, drug use. It was non-sustainable.
1: Well, I, I can put the link to the podcast too for um, it was oh, yeah, conversations you. with Richard Feidler. Said, I love oh, well, yeah, God. I, I love. That's a good one. Yeah, I'll send a link. I'll put the link because it summarises rather than reading the whole book summarises that in a,
2: this um, an interview. Yeah. And it resonated a bit for me this book and the theme. When I was in Boston uh, around 15 years ago, I did do a bit of work with the US military. And fair to say, even in the modern military, there is still use of medications to help with staying alert in extended operations. And hearing some of the history of that was also of interest. So what's coming up, Moira, over the next month?
1: Well, as I said earlier, we've got an event in Canberra that we're launching the report and, and some other things that are going on, a, a joint project with the ASA and the Sleep Health Foundation. So that's something I'll talk about further next uh, episode yeah, in good, September. Good
2: luck with that. Hopefully yeah, that's so really- that's really good and allows an opportunity yeah. for advocacy about yes, sleep. Yes,
1: absolutely. You want to get the attention of the politicians and, and take it from there. Of course, there's a lot of sleep conferences coming up that I'm going to sleep down under in an October in Auckland. What about you?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I won't be able to go to that one. The planning's going great for that conference, though, and really exciting programs. i I've encouraged yeah, yeah. people to go. Same weekend, I'll be actually going to Jalanda in... India for a conference. And there's also World Sleep Congress in Prague in early October, so look out for updates about research that's presented in Prague. We've talked in this episode about why treat sleep apnea. In the next episode, we're gonna talk about how to treat sleep apnea. We're focused largely on CPAP, in this episode, but there are other ways of treating sleep apnea. And we'll talk to some other guests about these different ways of treating sleep apnea. And that'll go up on September 4th.
1: Great. Look forward to it. So thanks once again, everyone, for listening. As we said at the outset, if you have any suggestions, we'd really love to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And, of course, please rate us on iTunes if if you can because it makes it really easy for everyone else to find where we are. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dave. We'll talk next month. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.